Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 30th of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. In just over a week on the 8th of October, Pascal Donoghue will announce the budget for next year. Less than a week after that, on the 17th, the leaders of the 28 European countries will meet while the terms of how the UK might leave the EU may be agreed with a deal or not without a deal or more time may be given to find a solution to the conundrum which has been on the table for the last three years. If an extension is not given and a deal is not agreed, the UK will leave in two weeks after that council summit on the 31st of October making it very difficult for everybody to put plans in place. Last week uh, the Budgetary Oversight Committee published its pre-budget report. Lisa Chambers is uh, Fianna Fáil TD a member of that committee and also her party's spokesperson on Brexit. She's on the line with us and a very good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. I suppose it's very difficult to make plans when you don't know when you're, what you're facing into. Yeah, no, it is. And initially, um, we've been doing our pre-budget work really for the last six months um, quite intensively. So we launched our budget report last week. And up until a couple of weeks ago, uh, our understanding was that Pascal Dunhill was going to actually publish two budgets one for a hard Brexit and one for an orderly Brexit, but obviously he changed his mind um, just a short time ago. So I think that was the right thing to do. It was always quite bizarre to me that you'd publish two budgets and kind of guess, you know, what you might implement after October 31st. So I think, you know, we had been advocating that we should have a prudent and conservative budget to make sure that we have enough money there mm. to protect vulnerable sectors. In particular, you know, we've heard evidence over the last number of months of the risks to agri-food, agriculture, tourism in particular. And they are the big, I suppose, the key sectors that are sustaining employment, particularly in rural Ireland. They're the two biggest employers. Do we, know, so we, will need do we even know, though, what, what, what the impact of that will be? We know that it'll be bad, but how bad? Uh, and I suppose that's like asking you, how long is a piece of string? Yeah, we have some forecasting available to us. Most of the, the agencies, the likes of the Department of Finance, the ESRI and IFAC, they've all had an, I suppose, attempted to forecast what a, a disorderly Brexit might look like. Um, we know, for example, that there's the potential for job losses in the tourism sector of maybe 10,000 jobs. In agri-food, we could be looking at 12,500 jobs. So we had 
I suppose, parameters within which we are working um, to, to kind of indicate what it might, what the outcome might be. But you're right, Michael, we don't really know for sure. Uh, safe to say that it will be quite disastrous for the country if there were no deal. Possibly worse than the last crash. The ESRI has said we'll go into a deep recession. People will become unemployed. People may lose their houses and people may find themselves in dire straits. Yeah, I mean, the ESRI revised its Brexit forecast last week. So we have been operating off a previous ESRI report, which had forecast, I suppose, recession for rural areas, but that the, the, the city would continue to grow but at a slower pace. Last week, they changed that forecasting. So now what they're saying is that it's quite likely the entire country will go into recession. Now, we don't want people to panic. I mean, recession is where you've got a downturn in growth for two consecutive quarters. You know, we can weather that and we will come through it. But obviously, if we have a deal in place, it means the country can continue to grow, we can continue to create employment and it won't set us back. So that's why the budget needs to be approved. Mm. That's why there hasn't been a huge amount of money to spend. It will be a pretty uneventful budget and most of the, the resources that we have available to us we will need to keep for those vulnerable sectors. In the, and even if we get an orderly Brexit, even if we have mm. a deal, mm. there will still be a hit to our economy but just a smaller hit. OK, do you believe it is possible uh, to reach a, a deal? Boris Johnson says uh, there are alternatives, uh, but uh, is reluctant to outline what those alternatives are. He is, and that's probably because he's in the middle of his Conservative Party conference at the minute. Um, so he's he's trying to keep at bay his own supporters, many of them very hardline, uh, very much hard bright with tears. Um, but there seems to be some positive soundings in that because he's effectively boxed in, because of the Ben Act, which prohibits and makes illegal a no-deal Brexit. Mm. And despite some of the posturing, even Sajid Javid was on this morning on radio, saying that they were going to leave regardless of the, of the legislation. There seems to be an attempt to look for loopholes, but it seems to be accepted that the best way for Boris Johnson to deliver Brexit is with a deal. And there appears to be a genuine attempt on his part to try and get the deal done. Now, a caveat attaching to that is Arlene Foster addressed the Conservative Party conference yesterday, mm. and she reiterated her party's stance with the UP that they will not accept divergence on customs uh, between Northern Ireland and Great Britain or divergence on regulation for other goods save for agri-food and animals. And we know that agri-food and animals while it's a positive step to have regulatory alignment north and south, it accounts for 30% of trade and we still have the other 70 to deal with. And it would still not uh, dispense with the necessity to have checks somewhere on the island which is something obviously we all want to avoid. Mm. Uh, Do you believe Boris Johnson can be trusted? Um, whether he can be trusted or not, I suppose that that's a very subjective question. Um, the reality is he's the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and that we must work with that individual, whoever he or she is, at any given time. It's a really important relationship mm. for both countries. Um, you know, we but, are if you, but if you were a, a British politician, it would be very hard to trust him objectively, wouldn't it? Never mind well, subjectively, I mean, because, I mean, uh, he's a, a track record uh, which speaks for itself. He's broken the law in uh, the prorogation of uh, the Parliament uh, and effectively lied to the Queen. He's uh, saying that he'll break the law under the Ban Act and uh, not look for the three-month extension, uh, that they'll find a, a way around that through the Privy Council or whatever uh, means uh, they find uh, of doing that. He's uh, being investigated now for impropriety in public office as uh, the Mayor of London and he's facing accusations of uh, acting inappropriately, inappropriately with a Sunday Times journalist. Yeah, I mean, Boris Johnson over his political career for many years has had, you know, I suppose, marks against his character and it appears to have kind of 
split off him to a certain extent. I mean, he is still a prime minister. Um, you know, other MPs in Parliament have said openly they don't trust him. Mm. Uh, that's why the Labour Party and other parties are refusing to give him an election now. They say they don't trust him to take no deal off the table and they want the extension applied for. Is it good that, he's, that, that he continues to be the Prime Minister, do you think, Lisa Chambers? Uh, because there is the prospect uh, that the Scottish Nationalist Party will force uh, an election through a confidence motion. Uh, but uh, if that happens, uh, there is uh, the risk of uh, the UK crashing out. Well, if the Scottish National Party do that and they get the support of other parties, they will have a 14-day, if they're successful, I should say, in, in that vote of mm. no confidence in the Prime Minister, they would then have a 14-day period to put together an alternative, I suppose, caretaker government. Um, and, and that caretaker government, led by whoever that may be, mm. won't have the option then to apply for no deal, and then you will probably see an election thereafter. But you know, looking at the polling in the UK, Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party are still far ahead of the Labour Party and other parties. So, you know, we may not like some of his rhetoric, we may not like his Brexit policy, um, but the fact remains that there are many citizens in the UK that very much support his Brexit policy and many of them voted for it. Um, and and that's, that's democracy, and that's politics. Mm. And it really isn't for Irish politicians to be telling the UK government how to run their country or vice versa. Um, but we do still want to get a deal done and it's important that we work uh, with our UK counterparts to try and achieve that because at the end of the day, that's the best for citizens on both islands. If, that has to be our priority. If an emergency government was to be put in place, led by Jeremy Corbyn or whoever, uh, for that interim period until there is the time to uh, allow for a general election, uh, do you believe uh, that uh, the European Council, the Europe- other European countries, would be open to the idea of an extension? I do. I, I do think they would. And I think that um, you know we have already very much reiterated our position at Dina Fall that we would we want to see the Irish government supporting any such application. Uh, an extension for us is far better than a crash out Brexit and anything that gives a little bit more time for a solution to be found is a positive thing. And I do think if there were a genuine reason, for example, an election, uh, that other member states would facilitate that because it would be the reasonable thing to do. At the end of the day, other member states, whilst we are the most affected, there are other member states like Belgium and France and the Netherlands and Germany that do a lot of trade with the UK. So they mm. do want to see it be done. Uh, and they want to see uh, the withdrawal treaty pass, if at all possible. So I do think that that, that, that facilitation in terms of the extension would be given if it were thought. Uh, and given, That's the key if it were asked for. Uh, and given this cloud of, of doubt, uh, would it not be prudent of Pascal, uh, because uh, he has... Uh, uh, being uh, called prudent, Pascal, but, but for the Minister to announce next week uh, that there'll be no change uh, as such in uh, the budget for 2020 until after Brexit. There is this obligation on them to publish uh, the budget uh, before the uh, uh, end of this month, uh, before the Brexit deadline, uh, under European uh, agreements. Uh, but if he was to say no change as such until we know what we're doing and then in the new year we can introduce uh, changes in taxes and spending and so on. Would that be a prudent approach, do you think? Well, to be quite honest, Michael, the, the, the fiscal space, as we're calling it, the amount of extra money available to spend for 2020 was quite minimal anyways, because the government have, spent, have overspent so much uh, this year and last year, particularly on health spending, we have, we're on track again to overrun in the health department by hundreds of billions again this year. Uh, the overrun in broadband plan in the National Children's Hospital have put significant pressure on the public finances. So the package available this year was quite minimal anyways. There really wasn't a whole lot to spend. Um, but for the country even to just stand still, so 
just to even make sure that people on, for example, disability payments or, or, or lone parent payments, that those people would even just maintain the same purchasing power in line with inflation. You would need modest increases to tweak that. Uh, and even in the Department of Health, you know, we know we're going to use additional money for next year as well, just to stand still, not to have new services, mm. just to maintain what we currently have. You'll always have a degree of, of a, a slight, you know, additional spending, but there will be nothing new. And I think it was welcome. We have been calling for this for quite some time, that the idea of tax cuts will be taken off the table for this, this coming budget because of the really vulnerable position our country is in. And finally, you know, despite what Leo Ragger had wanted, Pascal Donoghue had finally said that they won't be cutting taxes here because we simply can't afford it. Okay. Interesting times ahead. Undoubtedly, it'll be uh, another interesting week uh, ahead of us as uh, the Brexit circus continues. Thank you, though, for joining us here on the programme this morning and uh, apologies to our, our listeners for the quality of uh, that phone line. That's Lisa Chambers, Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on Brexit. Now, as mentioned, uh, the... Prime Minister Boris Johnson has faced fresh allegations of inappropriate behaviour with Sunday Times journalist Charlotte Edwards saying that he squeezed her thigh at some time in the 90s. Minister Matt Hancock has been speaking to Channel 4 about that accusation. It's incumbent on us not to um, to overreact when you... Overreact's the wrong word. To, um, to react without the full details. Um, I, I know Charlotte well, and I entirely trust what she has to say. You and believe think, her when she says he grabbed her upper thigh? Well, I, I, I know her, and I know her to be trustworthy. All right, well, if she's uh, trustworthy, undoubtedly it is a, a credible claim that will require uh, investigation. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson has been speaking to the Conservative Party at a, its conference in Manchester. He spoke to the BBC's Andrew Marr yesterday. Things, so, admittedly, at the moment, are very tough, and there is a great deal of abuse being directed at everybody. And it's particularly reprehensible uh, when it seems to be directed at, uh, at female MPs. So, so when Paula Sheriff, the Labour MP, who's a friend of Joe Cox, raised the subject of death threats being made against her in the House of Commons, you described that as humbug. Well, that's not true. That's not quite well, right. If I can you, just you explain what I... What I here. You, you're, you're, well, you're right that I used that word. Mm-hmm. But what I was referring to, Andrew, I want to make, I want to make a very important distinction between that issue of threats and abuse directed at MPs, which mm-hmm. is totally unacceptable and which we have to prevent, and uh, what I think is the legitimate use of old, tried and trusted metaphors to describe mm-hmm. certain parliamentary acts or indeed events in politics. And if you, cannot, if you, if you cannot use uh, a metaphor like surrender to describe the Surrender Act, what? then in my view, you are impoverishing the language and, uh, and yeah. diminishing, okay. diminishing parliamentary debate. And the word surrender is one of uh, the words uh, that has uh, been objected to. Boris Johnson speaking to Andrew Marr on BBC yesterday and sounding somewhat restrained in his language, even if he was arguing that he should be able to use the word Surrender. He wasn't quite as restrained when he, he left the BBC and spoke uh, to some of his Tory colleagues at the conference in Manchester. Do you think it's OK, by the way, they call it a surrender? Right? Yeah. 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 Do, do you think I'm all right to, to stick with these military metaphors? Yeah. Yeah. Am I fighting a losing battle? Yeah. Yeah. Should I 
stick to my guns. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking on the fringes of the Conservative Party conference in Manchester using those military metaphors. As he put it, Lisa Chambers uh, did mention a, a moment ago that Sajid David was on BBC Radio this morning and, and he was asked by Nick Robinson if he felt it was still possible to leave by the 31st. By then, I hope we would have already reached an agreement, at least uh, in principle, uh, with the EU before that date. And, and, and then if the council endorses that, then, of course, we need to bring it back to Parliament. We need to still clear Parliament with that deal. But do you but think there'll be a deal to present to the EU in the next few days, which is what people say we will all, be necessary if you're going to get an agreement? We, we have already, on the, on the big issues, you know, especially around the, uh, the obviously, the, the border and the, and the uh, northern and south of Ireland, that we are uh, working uh, very much with our Irish friends. I've been very involved in those negotiations myself to look at the replacement uh, of the backstop. And those negotiations are going on and they're very, very serious negotiations. But again, it's one of the confusing things for people listening is you say we're doing it. They hear the Irish foreign minister, the Torrenister, and they also hear EU leaders saying we haven't yet seen actual written formal legal proposals so are they going to get them this week well look they you know, they would you know whether it's michelle barnier or others involved on in the eu side they will say all sorts of things and it's part of a negotiation strategy anyone who's been involved in a serious negotiation knows that especially in the world of politics Chancellor Sajid David making it crystal clear to the BBC Radio 4 Today programme that it is possible to leave by the 31st of October. Yes, it is. It's not uh, our preferred outcome. We are working incredibly hard to get a deal by October the 31st, and I absolutely believe that can still happen. It can still be done. But if we do not manage to do that, we do still need to leave the EU on that date. We cannot have any more dither and delay, and we will leave, if we have to, without a deal on October 31st. Well, you couldn't be clearer about that. Now, yesterday the Prime Minister was asked all sorts of ways you might get round this law and wouldn't answer. So I'm not going to waste your time. Thank you. I just want to know, do you know the answer? I, I, I think I do, but... Uh, the, you know the, that there is a way well, around this look, law. The, the, the intention of the law is clear, and, and, I, and I do think uh, it had, has absolutely made it harder uh, for the government to, to get the deal that we all want to see. That said, it can still be done. But you think we, there's a way around the law? Clear. In other words, it's, you, not, it's not about getting around the law. We will. I don't really want to discuss the detail of, of this law. Okay. Well, if he's not going to discuss the detail of it, he's not going to discuss the detail of it. So all we know is there will be no more dither and delay. That's uh, the Chancellor Sajid David, who was speaking to BBC Radio earlier this morning. 
Recent research from CyberSafe Ireland found that children are spending the equivalent of 61 days a year on the internet and worryingly perhaps 43% of children aged between 8 and 13 years talk to people online that they do not know in real life. Let's hear more about this. Mary Kearns has been in Ashburn where she's been asking people if they think children and young people are spending too much time on the internet. Oh, they definitely do. Sure, they all have Xboxes and they're connecting with people in Australia and England. Personally, I have a seven-year-old who has a Nintendo, so he's not at the live stage yet, but I am very aware of it. And I've spoke to him and said, if anybody messages come up on your console, you have to show your mammy and you don't talk to anybody else. So I, I'm very aware of that fact, yeah. And do you think that's the key, that parents need to, to be monitoring, to be supervised and to be telling their children what they need to be watching out for? Yeah, I think that parents should should be with their children. So encourage them to put their consoles onto the telly, have their PC and their Nintendos in the sitting room where you see. I don't think that they should be in the bedrooms by themselves for hours on end or when it's bedtime and the light should be off. And I think that's where the problem starts it's when the parents are not watching but if you're watching your child same if you're watching your child out the window playing they won't come to any harm and there should be times when it's not raining that children should be out playing and you put that away and I would definitely be say you can have it between six and seven and then after seven you can have it again later but there has to be breaks a half an hour in between consoles because they'll just get brainwashed the whole thing I think they are a little bit too much time it can be difficult to monitor but I have the password of the internet at home, so I have a certain amount of control. And yeah, I think it would be better if they were outside more um, and less screen time. Can't do any harm. You have young adults, would you have spoken to them about the dangers and what they should be watching out for? I would, I would have, yes. Uh, they do get a little bit in school as well. But yeah, I think they're fairly clued in to what's going on, especially when they're older. Maybe the younger age or ages need a bit more guidance and uh, supervision. Yeah. Well, it's, our children are being reared online now. The, the mother and father seems to have very little to do with rearing children, which I think is a very negative idea, you know. The, uh, the children should be reared by their mother and father and they should forget about online until they're at least 19 or 20 years of age. Let them go through school first. Let them be children first. You're of an older generation. Would you notice the difference? I'm 75 now. I notice the difference. And I regret to say in my grandchildren, I see it very much prevalent today, the online thing. And uh, it's a sad situation. It's not a good development for for the future of Ireland. And then there's the danger element, because the survey also showed that children between the ages of 8 and 13 were speaking to somebody they didn't know online. I think the Department of Justice should have a, from a law point of view, should have a little closer look at this and see how it's affecting our grandchildren and to see, try and ascertain what it's going to be like 10 or 15 years down the road. Will the mammies and daddies talk to the children or the, the old grandfathers like me? Will anybody talk to the children anymore or will they talk with us in 10 or 15 years' time when I'm long gone? I don't like the look of it, you know. Do you think the art of conversation is disappearing? It's totally disappearing. Even amongst men and wo- man and woman is disappearing. You know, and certainly not at my age is not disappearing, but at the younger age is disappearing, and they're they're, they're running into the divorce courts quicker than they were. We'll say what fifteen or twenty years ago. You know, you're nineteen years old. Are you surprised that children are spending as much time on the internet, the equivalent of sixty-one days? Not at all. No, <laughs> it 
just like sitting around the house, you have nothing else to do. You just take out your phone, go on Instagram, Snapchat. There's so many different social media accounts. You can watch TV, Netflix. It's endless opportunities to go on your phone. Do you actually talk to other people face to face? Is there human contact anymore? <laughs> Honestly, not really. Like you go out with your friends and you're all sitting at dinner or something and everyone's just on their phones. And it's, it's actually appalling when you think about it. <laughs> so you're sitting around a dinner table. There's how many of you? Could be endless amount of people. And everybody's on the phone? Well, not everyone, but there could be times you're talking to someone and they're just sitting there on their phone and, I don't know, what's the point, like? And does it bug you at all that you accept that this is part of life and you're as bad as everybody else? No, it does bug me because sometimes, like, if you haven't seen someone in a long time and you go out for dinner with them and they're just on their phone and you're like, I could have just, like, FaceTimed you or something instead of actually, like, spending money to go out and see you, like, just... And what age were you when you got your first mobile or smartphone? Um... I got a fr- my first Nokia or something when I was like 12, so I was quite young. But And were you monitored on it? Not really, no. But, I mean, it was just a little tiny Nokia. All you could, sorry, all you could do was text and call. So. Oh, okay, so you didn't have the internet. No. <laughs> so what age were you then, maybe when you progressed to the smartphone, when you upgraded? <laughs> um, I got my first iPod when I was like 14. So not too young, but not too old either. And if you had children yourself, would you allow them to be on the internet constantly not constantly i probably set like a like a time limit a day or something that they could do whatever they wanted like play games watch tv whatever they wanted to do i think it largely depends on the content or looking at on the web more than anything else um i've seen a lot of a lot of students ty's in their search leaving cert students who use it for our benefit from a learning perspective and uh, I've also seen them educate themselves in terms of software and so on and so forth. And if it's used for that, I see absolutely nothing wrong with it. It depends on the content. But spending the equivalent of 61 days a year? Well, 61 days a year is a bit over the top right enough. I mean, to me, the majority of people I work with all um, all play sport, and um, they spend more time training than would do anything else. Um, so that would limit their participation. So I think the longer you spend indoors, if you're outdoor and take the healthy option, uh, you won't have as much time to look at the internet. Uh, yes, I do. It's very difficult to control. I have a 14-year-old boy and a little girl as well. Um, it's part of them growing up, though, with technology ever-changing. But it is something that I'm very conscious of and that I'm concerned about. I do try to monitor the activity of my 14 year old as closely as possible um, restricting access to certain sites on the internet and certain things um, but he's a 14 year old boy, he plays Playstation, Xbox he's online with his friends all the time and there are people that he wouldn't necessarily know who would be, um, who he may be talking to which is quite scary and, and that. but I try to make sure that it's in a room where everybody is and that he's not talking to somebody on his own outside it's all done within a family room and I talk very openly to him about it I ask him questions as to who he was talking to who he was online who was he chatting to today um, and and what he's done um, and I very much have him warned and uh, for things to look out for um, and not to just assume that the person that he's talking to is telling the truth and is who they say they are I know of some parents who check their children's phone. Would you go that far? I do have access to his phone. I have his passwords for his social media accounts. Um, He logs onto those using my phone as well. So there are times when, yes, I will go in and I will check up on things. Not that I'm necessarily worried about what he's doing, 
but it's more about what others are, are doing or saying to him. Indeed. Interesting thoughts and uh, thanks uh, to those people in Ashburn who took time out of their day to stop and speak and share their opinions with Marie Kearns for us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the idea of increasing taxes on fuel will be to get you out of your dirty car, as it may be at the moment. That's if you drive a petrol car or a diesel car, for that matter, and encourage you to go electric and to save the world. Because, as we know, the carbon emissions across the globe are leading to complete Armageddon, and time is ticking. At least uh, that will be the twist put on uh, the budget announcements if fuel increases as a result of increased taxation. Conor Faulkner, Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland is on the line. And Conor, you seem to be saying uh, that that argument is one way of pulling your leg and uh, that uh, they should pull the other one. Well, indeed, unfortunately, we've been here before, and not just with this current government. I mean, it's a recurring pattern. If you think about the amount of fuel already charged, uh, uh, the amount of tax already charged on fuel, it's about 60% of the retail price of your litre of petrol is tax anyway. Now, we could call that carbon tax. I mean, currently it's excise duty and VAT and carbon tax. We could call the whole thing carbon tax and then proudly tell the world that we have the highest carbon taxes on the planet. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this is all cosmetic. It's not truly affecting the situation in Ireland and government, I think, knows that. So my concern is that they'll throw a few cents per litre on petrol and diesel in the budget coming up and they'll tell us that this is a climate initiative, a carbon initiative, because who can be against that? I mean, you're Mm. against the science, you're against the planet. And government quite cynically knows that because they know also that it doesn't make any difference. The purpose of a carbon tax, if you're using it properly, is to nudge behaviours, to persuade the consumers, to get people to switch from one usage to another. Now, if you've got consumers who don't have that option, particularly in rural Ireland or in the commuter belt for Dublin, physically impossible for these individuals to move away from 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 buying fuel so they've no choice they just have to suck it up and pay the extra we've seen fuel prices rise every month this year from from january right through to september every single month the price of fuel has gone up it hasn't made any difference to the amount of fuel that we use why because we don't have alternatives now government knowing this know that they can call an increase in fuel taxes a climate measure. They can claim that it's all part of a climate strategy, but they know full well it's not going to have any impact whatsoever on fuel usage or on climate, but it's a lovely piece of PR cover to allow them to impose a tax increase. But if, that's exactly what's going to happen. If they were to reach their objective of getting people to stop driving uh, diesel and petrol cars uh, to save the environment, uh, the alternatives that they would have to make available are e-cars, uh, the electronic cars, but the technology doesn't seem to be there, buses and trains, public transport, uh, not something that is an option for a lot of people, particularly in rural Ireland, as you say, or the, uh, I suppose, feeling that you're safe to ride a bicycle. 
Well, it's all of the above, Michael, uh, in, in, in sort of varying measures. But, I mean, the, mm. the, the one that is really going to make a, a, a seismic difference to us over a relatively small period of time is electric cars. Electric cars are coming. Mm. They're coming in huge volumes. You might be saying to yourself, oh, it's only a niche little thing now. A couple of local eccentrics have them, but sure, it's never going to be mainstream. The same thing was said about smartphones when they first came along. Mm. And within a couple of years, they were everywhere. That is going to happen with electric vehicles and it's a really good thing that it does or feeling safe to ride the bicycle well again, <laughs> because this uh, is this is one of uh, the big problems with riding a, a bicycle you need infrastructure for it well, we, we certainly need to invest in that, and it, we get good bang for our buck there because it's relatively cheap to do. Um, but I think one of the words you used there was, 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 was illustrated, Michael, feeling safe, because mm. these things are about perception. In fact, statistically, you're safer on your bike now than you ever were before. When you and I were growing up, um, you know, taking a bike to school, it was three, four, and five times more dangerous statistically then than it is now. The number of people killed on Irish roads is down by two-thirds in the last 20 years. They have never been safer in the modern era, but it's how things are perceived. And and, and you're right to to address that point. So we have a whole generation of school kids, for example, and, and, you know, the the parents are just, you know, not willing Mm. uh, to trust them to allow them to cycle to school because they're worried about them being knocked down. And they they were... five times more likely to be knocked down 30 years ago, but parents didn't worry as much. Mm. So it's to do with perception. And you're right, loads and loads of initiatives that can encourage behaviours like that produce real transport wins, real climate wins. But a measure like saying, we care about the planet, so here's another three cents on the cost of your diesel, that achieves nothing. Well, but can we not take the three cents on the diesel and build some bicycle lanes? Well, yeah, but um, again, this is the last refuge of a scoundrel, Michael. If government tells you, we're going to take more money off you, Mm. okay? We know it doesn't do a blind bit of good, but we're going to take it anyway. But trust us, we'll spend it on the good stuff. Now, that is pretty unconvincing from the point of view of motorists. Uh, And governments traditionally resist hypothecation, which is the ring fencing of taxes. They suck Mm. money in and then they decide where it's going to be spent. And that's what they're going to do this time. So don't be fooled. I mean, I would love to see, and the AA has put forward a number of ideas, I would love to see genuine climate and carbon initiatives contained in this budget. For example, a diesel-to-electric scrappage scheme would be fantastic. Now, there you'll be hitting the nail on the head. That's a measure that actually has the potential to have a carbon dividend, Mm. a climate dividend, a really positive policy. So we can support those things, things like the bike to work scheme or investment in in bicycle lanes or investment in park and ride schemes Mm. or money plowed into buses or money invested in the train service. Those are all really good stuff. You won't find the AA grudging the motorist Mm. tax money when it's spent on those things. But just lobbing the few bob on the fuel and saying, look, we love Greta, we love the planet, this is all about carbon. Mm. That's a lie. It's very difficult, though, isn't it, to get the balance? uh, Because even if you were to take a a scheme like that, uh, you would disadvantage those who are less uh, well-off and advantage those who are well-off, because you're still talking about buying a a new car, even if you're going to scrap in your car, but that's not something that somebody will do if they have an 05 reg, let's say. Correct. Uh, I agree with that. And, um, you know, we, we had that previously when, when, when uh, we incentivized the switch from petrol to diesel. It does improve the whole national fleet over mm. a fairly quick period of time. So it works as a policy. But then when you go down to the detail, you realize, look, there are some unfairnesses baked in here. You get somebody who gets a brand new executive saloon, um, you know, 
whatever, E-Class yeah. Mercedes or 5 Series BMW or something like that. With a nice and discount, effectively. Yeah, yeah. and it's mm-hmm. very, very clean and there's, there's very little coming out of the tailpipe. And the thing pays less in annual road tax than a 10-year-old Nissan that mm. you know somebody is struggling to keep on the road. And, and while it's better for the planet to have the clean car on the road, not the dirty car, it just doesn't feel terribly fair to somebody who's not in a position to buy new. Mm. And I, I agree with that. And I think we have to be sensitive to that. If we're, if we're trying to, it depends what you're trying to achieve. Are we trying to achieve long term a switch from dirty fuels to clean fuels right across the board for everybody's benefit? Because mm. that's something we can all agree with. Or are we using this as an excuse, as a classic piece of air cover from the PR department to cover up the fact that we're just taking in extra money. Mm. We're going to call it a a, a climate measure. We're going to call it a carbon tax. But we know for a fact it cannot affect people's behaviour. They're captive in their cars. So it's just going to get us extra money. But even at that, you can't can't run before you walk. And if you buy one of these new electronic cars, however fancy it may be, that's all well and good unless you're trying to drive to Galway and you run out of power in that loan. Well, they're getting there. I mean, as I say, Mm. the technology is getting better and better and better. The first iterations of electric cars did have that problem. And really, they were only suitable to to be local cars. Um, And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. In a two-car household, have one local car and one long-range car can make the best of sense. But you're right. For people who drive regularly back and forth across the country, the electric car up to now has not really been an ideal option. Um, and even now, there are car, e-cars that are brilliant for that, that will give you 500 kilometers of range. I can drive back and forth to my parents in County Sligo, no bother, and you know, can do that on a single charge. That's great. Those cars are expensive. They're well over 30 grand, even when you allow the grants and discounts, and you buy a hell of a lot of conventional car for 30 grand. So you know, they're, they're, they're not quite for everybody, mm. not quite. But they really are close. And I, I would think within a few years, if you look at all the manufacturers are producing e-cars now, they're all coming on stream. Within a few years, we'll have e-cars available that you'll buy and use. And, and you know, you really won't notice a difference from the conventional car. We're almost there, Michael. And I think when that comes along, it'll be you know, will make a transformative difference. It seems as though the pressure on government is such that it's inevitable that there'll be an increase in carbon taxes. Uh, for the last year, uh, the yeah, government well, has been asked... pressure on government. Why, is, why is it that you didn't do it last time round when you promised to do it and said that we were a laggard? And can that go on for two years? Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think the, uh, uh, you know, the pressure in inverted commas is, 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 you know, the government's quite enjoying it because, you know, the pressure is to say we're doing something about the planet, call it carbon tax. But look, let, let's be honest about this. They're talking about bumping up the price of diesel. That's what they're talking about doing. Mm. Now, that is not a visionary planet-saving strategy. That's an expediency. That's telling the PR department to call it carbon. In the knowledge, it's not going to make any carbon difference, but it's going to pull you in lots of lovely lolly. And that's what the government is planning to do. And that is the disappointment. And they should be called out on it. This is, um, you know, the, the, the planetary climate change argument is too serious to allow, you know, some sort of flippant cash grab perpetrated by government to be the only thing we do about it. And I'm afraid, uh, you know, uh, the way things are lining up, I fear that's exactly what it'll be. Okay, Connor, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Connor Faulkner, Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and welcome back. And good morning to everybody listening in. Chris was in touch and he says, did they not take a vote in the English Parliament to stop Boris Johnson going without a deal? And it was passed into law. So how can Boris go without a deal, Chris wants to know? Yeah, well, that's a a very good question, uh, which uh, the opposition parties are looking at. And they may be introducing amending legislation to the legislation, which prevents him leaving without a, a deal by law, because there appears there could be some loopholes to that. Tom from Navin cannot see the UK leaving before October 31st. It's only 31 days away. Who is suddenly going to come up with a solution in that time, Michael, when they haven't up until now, says Tom? Well, that's the problem. If they don't come up with a a solution and they don't get an extension, they leave without a deal. Jack says, Michael, you were on about Johnson again. It was Trump first and now Johnson. Is your show not supposed to be fair to all sides, says Jack. I'm not sure. I'm not not sure. I understand you, Jack. Uh, I mean, uh, the world uh, is on the brink of significant change uh, and uh, indeed uh, something that could impact on everybody's lives. Uh, Mr. Johnson is, of course, uh, the British Prime Minister, and there's a lot of focus uh, on uh, what he is doing and how he is handling all of this, not just uh, here on this programme, but uh, I think uh, across the world at this stage. Declan doesn't feel that the budget next week will be relevant because we don't know what's happening with regards to Brexit. Surely everything is going to hinge on that. Brendan was also in touch on the topic of Brexit and worries about the implications for businesses along the border areas. He says he's already aware of shopping trips being organised to the north from the south overnight stays, uh, day trips. And he's saying this is pre-Brexit, Michael. So what's going to happen if there is a hard Brexit and what will the implications be for businesses? He reckons that millions of euros will be lost in the run-up to Christmas. God knows uh, it's a crystal ball uh, that uh, you'd need to predict uh, the outcome of a a no-deal Brexit. It will be bad. The question is just how bad. But let's talk about uh, something good. In fact, uh, the best schools in the country and uh, we're joined by Colin Murphy who compiled the Sunday Times Good School Guide for 2019, which was uh, published uh, this weekend. Uh, a very good morning to you, Colm, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us uh, the uh, objective of uh, publishing uh, the surveys for us. Okay, uh, first of all, good morning, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, the objective is the Irish education system is um, probably one of the most important attributes that the, the, the country has, in a sense, the people are its main resource. Uh, but for, you know, all the decades that's been in existence, there's been a shroud of secrecy about, you know, what schools perform the best, what schools perform the worst, and you know, what schools are the best to get to. Do you need to send your kid to a private school to get the best education or whatever? Um, and there's been kind of a huge lack of kind of... Um, an understanding, I suppose, of, of, you know, about school performance, even though, you know, the taxpayer spends billions every year paying for it. And it's school children, I suppose, they only get one chance of education, you know, so it's important that that chance is the best that they can possibly get. Um, so 16 years ago, uh, using when the Freedom of Information Act came in, uh, we at Sunday Times decided to use the act um, to, to, to go to get the, the information about the schools. Um, and I've been doing that ever since. 
um, and it's by no means an easy feat uh, every year there's objections and we've had to appeal every year and so forth so it's quite a um, quite an evolved exercise. Okay because there is always uh, objections to the idea of publishing school tables uh, but uh, having said that uh, there's a few of our, our local schools uh, that appear at the top of your tables. Uh, does that mean that children uh, who live locally are not going to good schools? Um, well I mean, the top school ranked in the, 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 the kind of loud me there, yeah, is coming in at 54 position, and that's school when we were in Trim and County Meath, uh, and that has moved up the ranks uh, from 71 to 54, and the second school ranked um, from the loud media area is the Reda Secondary School in St. Michael's, Navan, and that's again moved up to 58 position from 76. So the schools in the loud media area, you know, I suppose they, they, there's 21 of them in the top 400, which, you know, is pretty good performance um, and if you look at the schools closely you'll see you know they, they're at, at the top end those it's four, three or four of the top schools in the area are sending over 70 percent to university which is you know a, a really very strong performance and even down at um, the ones that are just kind of getting into the top 400 they're sending 36 percent uh, to university which again you know is it's above average nationally uh, for it, um, and but across all those twenty-one mm. schools, they're sending kind of relatively high numbers to Institute of Technology, and I suppose that would be linked in with having the um, the dog IT in the area. Um, so you know, overall, it's it's not a, an outstanding performance, but it's not a terrible performance either. You know, it's it's mm. it's it's kind of just about average, you know, uh, as what we would expect. What, what, what is it that make makes good schools good? Uh, is it uh, that children from affluent uh, areas perform better, or are there other factors at play? Uh, there's other factors at play. I mean, our, the number one school on the list uh, is not in an affluent area, and it's not a fee-paying school, so it's uh, Laurel Hill Colostep in um, South Circular Road in Limerick. Um, and it beats all the private schools in the country. Uh, and we, we interviewed the principal and, and so forth and that, and, and asked what was the, the recipe for success. But it's a you know it's a partnership, a very strong partnership between the parents, the pupils, and the teachers. And they really strive that every student achieves their best and the best that they can achieve. Um, and they really put great emphasis on not just the academic performance of the mm-hmm. students, but you know they they take part in extracurricular activities and so forth. So they become embedded with the school, and just no matter what no matter what they're doing, they're, they're, they're very much trying their best. Whereas you will see, you know, a huge differentials in schools. Like there's, they all get the same mm-hmm. state funding, but uh, some of them really, you know, they're sending a very, very small number to universities. They're sending a very small number to institutes of technology. And really, yeah, have to ask yourself the question, what's going on in that school? You know, how, how come there's such a differential mm. uh, between them? Um, so, you know, you do get pockets of, of, of excellence and where they really do... Um, performs that there is uh, and that, 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 County that, Dublin that, and rich areas that have very poor performance so mm. it, it, you can't say there's a direct sure. correlation between the two Okay, uh, and uh, as you say, that's a, a public school uh, and one uh, that uh, has been performing better than any other school. Nearly all of uh, the girls uh, at that school in Limerick go on to university and Laurel Hill yeah. is a girls only school. But uh, uh, that's probably not coincidental either because uh, girls seem to be doing better than boys in school. They are, and if you even look at the schools in the Loudmead area, uh, of the top seven schools in the Loudmead area, um, six of the top seven are girls-only schools. Um, so 
So there's a lot of research has been done on this as to why that is the case. Um, and you know, one of there's a number of reasons for it. And one, one would be girls at the age of leaving cert are a bit more mature than boys, so they're, they're much more focused on on the leaving cert on on the exams. Um, so you will get a, a better performance that way. Um, there's also evidence to show that boys perform better when they're in a mixed school, and so they be- benefit from being um, in education with girls. Um, but girls don't necessarily benefit the same uh, as boys. So there's a lot of, um, I suppose, psychology going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it is interesting to, to look at that phenomenon. And there are certain schemes uh, that some schools uh, adopt, uh, as you say, that others don't, uh, that may be benefiting uh, some of the students, including a buddy programme uh, for English speakers. Yes, well, one of the key things, I suppose, and Looking at the lab meet area, there isn't so many of them, which is the the, the Gael Colossal, which is the Irish speaking schools outside the Gael talked area, do extremely well on the lead tables. Um, so outside of the private schools there, that the, the other best performers and they point well above their weight. Um, so in the schools, say in Laurel Hill Colossal, sixty percent of students going into that haven't gone to an Irish speaking primary school. So what they do is they buddy them up with more senior students in the school to teach them in, to, to conversational Irish and, and to help them that way. So there's very, you know, there's a lot of things that schools can do um, to help the students coming in and to kind of promote kind of a, 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 an excellence within the school that don't necessarily cost money. You know, they're, 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 they're ones that, you know, just it's about organisation structure and about leadership and about, you know, trying to promote the students to, to, to really go for excellence as opposed to, you know, mediocre performance. Okay. Uh, well, you mentioned some of uh, the local schools. Uh, the full list of 500 schools are available to people if they're interested online at uh, the Sunday Times website, uh, thesundaytimes.ie. We'll leave it there for the moment, and uh, thanks for joining us this morning, Colm. Colm Murphy, who compiled uh, the Sunday Times Good School Guide 2019. Now, just uh, very briefly, we'll go back uh, to the phones. Uh, you have some more calls. For I have indeed. Radio. John and Alvin phoned in. He was listening to your interview with Conor Faulkner. Just regarding tax on fuel and petrol and says he's totally against this. He says that it will take money out of all of our pockets. Most people drive and especially feel sorry for commuters having to use their vehicles for work. And he wanted to just mention the thousands of young people who marched last Friday week protesting about global warming. Mm. He says that he's hoping that they'll start to take action personally, not just do that as a once-off protest. They need to be taking shorter showers, spending less time maybe charging their phones, putting the lights out every so often. If they want the government to listen, they must be prepared to take action themselves. Yeah, well, maybe taxes on mobile phones uh, would uh, give uh, some pause for thought, or maybe not. Okay, we leave there for the moment. <laughs> All right. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. And if you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, I suppose uh, there's been a, a little bit of respite on uh, the front pages uh, today, moving away momentarily from Brexit to football, or at least uh, the management of Irish football. And we're joined uh, by Fergus O'Dowd of Fine Gael TD and uh, the chairperson of the Eructus Committee on Transport, Tourism and Sport. And a very good morning to you and thank, thank you, you indeed for joining us. Uh, somewhat historic in the sense uh, that John Delaney has been a key figure in Irish football for many years uh, at this stage. Uh, he, he's now left the association. 
He has, yes. And the issue was that, and the reason I'm here is that a settlement was reached and announced at 11.15pm on Saturday night. Mm. Uh, and it's now eight days before a forensic audit report on the FAI is available or published. Mm. And it's expressing my deep concern that they didn't wait until we see exactly what's in that report. Mm. And uh, of course, the, the other issue is that the settlement itself wasn't announced. It was announced that a, a settlement had been reached yes. and that both parties wouldn't be making any further comment on it. But we don't know how big or how small the settlement was. That's, that's, There's a lot of speculation about this, though, at the same time. And we're seeing figures of 350, 450, maybe half a million. Yes, and you're absolutely right. There's no transparency about the amount. And the other point which is worrying and concerning is that they, both sides have agreed that they weren't going to make any comment on it whatsoever. Now, we see that there are stories in the papers this morning mm. which uh, contradicts that. And I think the truth is that we need to have all of the truth. We need to have it as soon as possible. And what I'm saying, Michael, is that when this report is available in eight days' time uh, and the full details of everything ought to be uh, ought to be available. Mm. And our committee agreed last week that as soon as the report is published, we will have all the players in, including the FAI, obviously the Minister and Sport Ireland, mm. uh, to go through you know, what lessons have been learned and more importantly, how do we make sure the 2.9 million goes back to all of those clubs right around the country. But with the experience that you've had thus far with the FAI, uh, it's hard... <coughs> to expect anything other than being stonewalled. Well, I think that we won't be so far this time, Michael. And I think the key point about the audit, uh, what the audit is actually looking at Mm. is the wider financial administration in the FAI, the internal controls environment, including an assessment of the FAI's fitness to handle public funds. So while John Delaney is a key part of all of that, and I do welcome Mm. the fact that he's no longer associated with the FAI, at the same time, I think the appropriate thing would have been Mm. to wait until we know exactly Exactly, exactly what went on there, the who, the what, the where, the why mm. of the 100,000 and any other issues that might arise as a result of the forensic work that has been going on. Yeah, but you were stonewalled in March. Uh, people will remember yes, of course, John yeah. Delaney came in, yep. made a statement and said, uh, for legal reasons, I'm saying nothing else. <coughs> yes, and mm. in fact, mm. we were advised at that time uh, that because of the Supreme Court case, uh, mm. the Angela Cairns case, that we would have to accept his bona fides in that regard. Mm. That uh, was the Chief Executive Officer of Rehab. And yes, she because because uh, she made a case and the, the courts basically mm. agreed with her that uh, the appropriate treatment before the committee mm. wasn't given to her mm. uh, were absolutely and that had sure. to do with the power of parliamentary committees it rather did, yeah. than the FAI itself. Oh yes, oh yeah, yeah. oh no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, had yeah, to do yeah, how yeah, you yeah, question yeah, a witness, yeah. uh, the, the the time that mm. you give them to respond, the breaks that you mm. give them, and also the way and the manner and the treatment of witnesses. Mm. You must always deal with them. Uh, you know, fairly yeah. and appropriately. And, and, so and, so, so uh, you said you'd wait for the reports. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that was last March. Here we are seven months later yeah. uh, and uh, there's three reports uh, I think due, uh, yes. which are due. One of yeah. them to uh, be published uh, in the next couple of weeks. In, in eight days we're told. Uh, I've mm-hmm. been told last Monday by John Tracy that the forensic audit report which I actually mm. requested that they would do that that will be available on the 7th. 
Mm. Now, what I then understand uh, is that it will be given to the FAI and they will have a week to make comments on it, which Mm. is the due process we spoke about. Then it comes back to the Board of Sports Ireland and then they also give a copy to the Minister and then we get a copy after Mm. that. So that's the due process. Uh, uh, But obviously, Mm. clearly, the committee want, and uh, we discussed this last week, to meet as soon as Mm. possible and we would hope to meet around the 16th of Mm. October. I'm not going to ask you if you feel that you've been hoodwinked, but do you think that you've been put in an impossible situation over the last seven months uh, and that the FAI might think or somebody else might think uh, that uh, you've been hoodwinked? Because uh, you said you'd wait until the reports were published. Here we are seven months later. In the meanwhile, John Delaney has been on this gardening leave, which meant... He didn't have to do anything for a salary of what two hundred and ninety thousand or something some, like that. I think it's three. We don't actually know. Okay, so so there's seven months' salary paid out. Yes, yeah. Uh, while, the, while these reports are in the course of, of being prepared, it's mad. And then suddenly, uh, suddenly he's gone. <laughs> yeah, but before you get, but while you're following due process yeah. and waiting for the reports to ask. These questions, yes, right, uh, so that you're yeah. fair, uh, uh, yeah. th- then the chance well, to do I that is gone because he's resigned or well, the, the, whatever has happened. I, I appreciate that. That, uh, as I said earlier, the fact that this report went out on a Sunday and a Saturday mm. evening so late that it couldn't be in the Sunday newspapers, mm. that the news cycle uh, was changing and mm. it was about the rugby and then it was about Brexit mm. and so mm. on. Mm. Of course, I'm concerned about news management. Very much so. But we as a committee are absolutely resolved that we will follow due process, absolutely and totally, but we will get to the truth, and Mm. it's about the truth. And the truth is bigger than John Delaney, and it's bigger than the committee. The truth is about restoring confidence in soccer and the administration of soccer. And there's also the matter, sorry, of the question of sponsors. There are huge commercial sponsorships Mm. involved in soccer. And I mean, they would, I'm quite sure without putting words in their mouths, Mm. that they would have deep concerns about the exactly what is happening. And they will want, as everybody else will want, Mm. total transparency about what the issues are in terms of the audit Mm. and what changes, if any, or otherwise are needed in terms of their systems and all of that, and mm. I think, I, I think that uh, I think that I think that the facts will speak for themselves. We don't have the facts right now, but I agree with you. It's not. It, it doesn't make nice reading to find out that all these things are happening before the event. Mm. But the event will take place. This report will be published, and we will ask the right questions on the right day. Uh, and as you say, the way that we're finding out, uh, because yep. uh, it was. Late on Saturday night, which meant that the Sunday papers didn't have the story yeah, in the cycle of news is yeah. such that, you know, by the time you get to Monday, the four-line statement, and it was as short as can be, this is the situation, no further comment, was basically what was issued by the FAI. Nobody's going to tell you anymore, don't ask, go away, yeah. uh, and everybody feels that they know it. You, you seem to be suggesting uh, that they're spinning the news. Uh, well, I think that's one way of putting it, and I would agree that that's definitely, to me, is a real spin, it's a try-on. But it's not working, Michael, because you're talking about it here today. The national media are talking 
talking about it today and we will continue to talk about it. And Brexit and no Brexit obviously is a hugely serious mm. thing. I think there is time between now and, and the end of October. And at this moment, we're looking around the 16th of October. The budget will be over. We're in the following week uh, to discuss calmly and properly and appropriately all of these issues with all of the facts. I think that's what the public want. And uh, I do believe that is what will happen. Okay, and John Delaney is now a a private citizen uh, and uh, there's no obligation on him to come before your commission. Uh, There isn't, no, legally. I suppose when you leave a position, you no longer hold that position. But nevertheless, we're inquiring into, you know, all of their funding, sorry, Mm. all of the issues in relation to how they spent their money, what they spent, the who, what, where Mm. and why is what we're looking for and that's what we'll get. And even if Mr Delaney isn't there and we Mm. can obviously, if he wishes to come in, I don't see why we shouldn't invite him in anyway mm. uh, to give his views, if any. Uh, like it's, you know, the, the, the committee, you know, it, it'll be it's a transparent, open process, and he's entitled mm. to come in if he wants to. And we certainly would love to have him in, uh, but it's a matter for him to decide. But the truth of the matter is, getting the money back to the FAI, and it's not just two point nine million. There's other funding, capital funding mm. for sport uh, in the soccer area. They want to make sure that every that they get that money. And at this moment in time, mm. they're not getting anything at all. Mm. So this, this is this is the crisis that but is. But uh, if the government doesn't supply funding to local sports groups, it's shooting itself in the foot. And yes, absolutely, th- and that's that's the dilemma that was there. But I think the public fully support. Mm. Uh, what we have been doing and indeed uh, Minister Shane Ross in the context of you know mm-hmm. we need to know exactly what this mo- what Mr Delaney got and what it's for and we need to know a lot more as well yeah, Is the FAI playing a, a game of chicken with the government? Well they can play whatever game mm. they like uh, chicken or mm. whatever but the truth of the matter is that the truth will come out and mm. that's all we're interested in mm. and, and obviously how that applies then to, to, to the sport. But they've won so far, haven't they? I appreciate Michael. Uh, I would love to have uh, I would love to have mm-hmm. Mr Delaney answer all the questions we yeah. had from not just from me, from yeah. everybody else. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But but that doesn't change that doesn't change mm-hmm. the facts. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and and I mean to some extent John Delaney and the FAI directed uh, the way the sports committee heard into this yeah. and the sports committee uh, said that the board should resign and that there should be a new board the yes, minister yes. said the board should resign and that there be a new yes. board and that yeah. didn't happen no it didn't happen and you're absolutely right in that respect and I have always held the view and I said it then and I say it now that all of them should go I told them on the day they mm. came in that they should all consider their position now there are two members as I understand it of the former board on the new board and I still hold that opinion and what we will be looking at and this is not personal to anybody mm. is that when we get all the facts of what went on and the questions around corporate governance and accountability who knew what where when and how mm. or didn't know what where when and how uh, these will all come out in the light of day and I believe that the due process is the proper process Michael uh, notwithstanding the points that you validly mm-hmm. make 
you know, I think this is the way to go. To and the honest. minister has said, uh, I think, uh, as the chair of the committee, you agree with the minister and speak on behalf of the committee that this deal needs to be made public now. Absolutely. All aspects of it. All aspects. And I believe it will be. I mean, again, we were told today in papers, leaked stories uh, that we will know in November. In November, guys, hey, come here. You know, who do they think they're calling, you know? Mm. In other words, it might disappear and we'd forget all about it. Well, we won't and we mm. c- we can't. Yeah. And we see the way other sports are run so professionally, so successfully. You look at rugby, uh, you look at the GEA, you look at the Olympic Council, uh, you look at all those sports and how, how fantastic. Last week we had the international roars in, in our committee uh, talking about their wonderful success, such a small country with such a small investment have so many uh, world medals world class athletes you know mm-hmm. and it's not just the people at the very top it's the people you know in the local club in the community and, and that's why government yeah. supports these organisations and yeah. that's the only purpose really yeah. uh, as well I'm sure as the national pride that people take in national that's teams yeah. but uh, when it comes to the state funding for the FAI yeah. uh, Will that be stopped if this deal it is, is stopped at the moment? Uh, the minister no, but could indefinitely it stopped until the deal is. Well, what the minister has said is that unless and until uh, full details of this agreement with Mr. Delaney is public, mm. uh, then there will not be a restoration. But th- that's not going far enough. And, and I, I understand the minister's commenting on that particular fact. The fact is, until we know. You know, about their capacity to handle, I just want to read it exactly, their fitness to handle public funds. Mm. We have to be shown that they are fit to handle public funds. That's what the, that's what the forensic audit is about. Mm. And until there's clarity on that, uh, they won't get money. No. And what about John Delaney's role in UEFA? Well, I understand that, uh, again, the story is leaking today, say that, uh, you know, he may be, I do you said. You know, there's a saga going on there as well. But, I mean, that's... Mm. I think Ireland needs to be represented on UEFA. I think the the best comment I read today was Mm. that we need somebody to step up to the mark with the credibility uh, and the the reputation to do and that that's job. it. Credibility is a real issue uh, and it's Ireland's international reputation. It is, of course it is and it's so important and as I understand it, uh, you know, that's what the international body wants as well and they have mm. been, I believe, uh, I don't have the exact amount of money, they have been funding the FAI uh, to, I think, I saw a figure like 8 or mm. 9 or 10, 10 million yep. because of this issue, that's sort of because of the load. financial mm. crisis, mm. you know, so like they are they're playing a significant part uh, in keeping you know keeping keeping the FAI going right now but i think you know it's got to move on to a new phase mm. i think that new phase must involve all new people absolutely okay. uh, with none nobody that's my personal view but but we we'll see what you know what what the report says. Okay, Fergus O'Dowd, thank you for coming into us uh, this morning. Much thank appreciated. You, Michael, for me on. Deputy Thanks. O'Dowd is uh, Finnegale TD and chair of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Transport, Tourism and Sport. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, new task force has been established uh, to deal with women's health. It's uh, to be led by the Secretary General of uh, the Department of Health and uh, the Director General of the European Institute for Women's Health. It's in partnership with uh, the National Women's Council of Ireland. And we're joined by Dr. Clean Lochnan, who's uh, the Women's Health Coordinator for the National Women's Council. A very good morning to you, uh, Dr. Lochnan, and thanks uh, for joining us as always on the programme this morning and I suppose 
we've heard time and again, in particular over the course of uh, the last year or two, that we wouldn't be hearing about the type of problems or scandals, if you like, in the health service if it wasn't exclusive to women. Is that the thinking behind this uh, task force, uh, to uh, change how women are treated in the health service? Oh, hello. Hello, Cleaner. Hello, Cleaner. We appear to have a problem with uh, that line there, and uh, we hope uh, to be able to make contact uh, with uh, Dr. Cleaner Lockdown of uh, the National Women's Council now. I think she is on the line, in fact. Hello, Cleaner. Hello, Michael. Hello, how are you? And thanks, Good, uh, thanks. indeed for joining us. Uh, I suppose we've heard time and again over the last year or two uh, that uh, the type of uh, problems women have experienced in the health service uh, has been uh, exclusively for women and wouldn't have been the case if men were being treated. Is that the type of complaint uh, that led to the establishment of this task force? saying there is something that actually came out of the Scally report. So when Scally went and spoke to women who were who were um, who'd been involved in the cervical check controversy, one woman said, why does it always happen to women? Mm. So what, there was this sense from women involved in that controversy that, you know, paid uh, to their health wasn't the same as might have been in other situations. But I suppose this task force has actually been a long time in the development. Um, and I think, you know, the recommendations from Dr. Scally, where he says that the department really now has to put a consistent attention to women's health has really strengthened the value of of the task force but it's something that's recognized around the world and many um, countries and health systems would have a specific focus on women's health and that's what this task force is doing it's about putting that consistent focus on women's health in ireland I'm sorry, there's a a problem uh, with the line and uh, it seems to be coming and going cleaner. We'll take a a break and see if we can improve on that line and come back to you in just a moment. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, I think we have uh, improved on uh, that phone line and we should be able to go back to Dr. Kleena Lochnan, uh, Women's Health Coordinator for the National Women's Council of Ireland. Uh, We were talking uh, about uh, the task force which has been established uh, to look at some of the issues uh, affecting women's health. Uh, Thanks uh, for bearing with us, uh, Kleena, and uh, for coming back to us. Uh, And uh, you were telling us uh, that there's a a perception that some women hold, uh, at least, that women are treated differently by health services than men would be. Uh, is that a, a, a perception that needs to be established or is it in fact a reality, do you believe? Well, I suppose there's a reality for women in that women have particular health needs that men, for example, do not have. So around maternity services, around reproductive and sexual health. And that's why there has always been a sense that we need to focus um, on women's, those specific health needs for women. But there is also the case, and it's not just in Ireland, it's, you know, across across the world, mm. is that in actual fact, our health service were often designed with what they call the male model patient in mind. So often actually health research and clinical trials haven't included women in them because of their reproductive cycles. They were felt it wasn't a good idea to include them. Or when um, different drugs were tested, the differences for men and women weren't reported or built into the service. And we also know, you know, women and men live different uh, lives and have different responsibilities sometimes. And sometimes their symptoms uh, will be different for different um, health conditions. But in general, the way we've laid out health services and the kind of research and understanding that Mm. backs up our health services is based kind of on the male body and the male experience. So so it's not just a concern about women's specific health services. uh, It's the health service uh, and all health services and uh, a possible patriarchal uh, approach, is it? 
Yeah, well, I suppose that's something that certainly came out of Dr. Scully's report when he looked, um, when he spoke to the women who'd been involved in the cervical check controversy. And women certainly, you know, talked about certain instances where things were said that did um, appear to have a patriarchal background to them. But also there was this sense that maybe uh, women felt that their their um, concerns weren't being listened to as much. And again, this kind of comes back to kind of gender stereotypes and um, gender hierarchies in the world that we live in. So for example, you know, there's this idea that men are meant to be strong um, and so therefore men may not go out and look for healthcare uh, services when they need them. But on the same, on, mm. at the same level, in terms of gender roles, women can sometimes be seen as being too emotional, for example, so that when women then have a health uh, symptom or condition and they go and seek support, that they're not listened to, that they're not investigated to the same extent. And we actually see, you know, in the medical uh, literature and in the research, for example, when we look at cardiovascular care, for example, you know, women's symptoms are different often when they're having a heart attack to men. So often they may not be picked up as quickly. And there's also evidence that shows that women um, don't undergo the same investigations, for example, um, that men do. So, you know, there are are these subtle differences that we need to address but the other thing I guess is that women have specific life experiences so women do a lot of the caring in our society they care for children but they also care for older uh, members of their family Uh, women also are more likely to experience violence for example and to have health needs that arise from that and also there are different kind of mental health conditions uh, that women experience um, compared to men or the symptoms may display in different ways so there are these differences um, in how women will use health services and what the task force is about is about looking at these differences and seeing how we can address them within the health service. Okay, and this is something that is uh, going to happen over a a long period of time. You're meeting every four to six weeks uh, and uh, there's opportunities for people to get involved and to influence the direction that health services take. Exactly. So, I mean, this has to be led by women, I suppose. Uh, if we've learned nothing, um, if you know, the thing we most, most must, must have learned from the health scandals that have happened in the past and that happened to women is that women have experience. Women can tell us where the issues are arising, where there might be gaps. But also women will have very good ideas about things they'd like to see change in the health service that would support them better. So the first major piece of work that the task force is going to do is a big, what we're calling a radical listening exercise. We want to go out and listen to women's experiences and listen to women's suggestions. So there will be a big programme of work and the task force will be out and about the country to do that. But even before that starts, people can go on to uh, the government's website, gov.ie, and look for women's health. And there's an email address there. You can send in your initial ideas, for example. But, you know, from us in the Women's Council, the the reason we're excited to be a partner in this task force Mm -hmm. is that it's going to be led uh, by and for women. And that's what we want to do in the task force. We want to make sure that any of the actions that are taken, the changes that are made, are done in partnership with women and based on what women are saying is happening for them on the ground. Okay, one healthcare service that is uh, exclusive uh, to women, uh, of course, is uh, the right to terminate a pregnancy. Uh, And uh, there's a question uh, about exclusion zones outside uh, some of the centres that provide abortion care. Uh, This is something that could prove to be problematic legally. Well, I suppose uh, we had a referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment and and the people of Ireland decided by big majority that um, it was to provide legal abortion services here in Ireland. And when that happened, I suppose, unfortunately, the reality is, is in other countries where abortion services are provided, there can be protests or kind of anti-abortion presence outside the places where that happens. And because of that, the Minister for Health promised, he committed Mm. to women, that he would introduce safe access zones. So these are zones um, outside healthcare facilities where you can't engage in certain behaviours or you can't 
go and approach people who are, who are trying to access the healthcare facility. And there's a strong reason for these. The reason is that we need to make sure that where women are accessing a legal health service, that they're not impeded from doing that. Mm. But also it's about protecting the staff uh, that are uh, within the service and also other patients who yeah, will be we, using we've health seen, services. We, sorry, we've seen some protests here, uh, but uh, I suppose not many uh, and not particularly violent. But uh, you do every now and then hear of people, particularly medics, being shot in America. I mean, yeah, there has been very, I mean, it's a very different culture there mm. and um, but, and there has been very scary things have happened mm. in the States. And I suppose, but, you know, we've gone through a process in here in Ireland where I think people understand um, the need for termination, why, why a woman might seek it out. And the public is, you know, majority pro-choice uh, and pro that healthcare being provided. And I suppose it's just about us making sure that where there, and there have been, unfortunately, anti-abortion pro, uh, presence outside hospitals, outside some GP uh, clinics as well and I guess what we need to do now I think is set down a marker and say that here in Ireland that's not the kind of presence that we want to see outside healthcare facilities and it is possible um, as I said to introduce legislation which would create a safety zone and that's been done in other countries we wouldn't be the first place to do it it happens in parts of Canada parts of Australia and in England they've also introduced them in some uh, boroughs where there are um, abortion clinics as well and I guess it is about us saying that you know this is not appropriate for it to happen where somebody is just trying to access a legal healthcare service in Ireland. Mm. Uh, and we are very disappointed because the government had said um, that the legislation would be introduced before the summer recess, that it would be a priority for this uh, term um, in the Oireachtas. But unfortunately, when the government published their um, legislative programme, the Safe Access Bill has really fallen down in terms of priority within the plan for government. So we're really mm. now saying to the Minister for Health that this has been promised, it's been committed to, it's important for women, but it's also important for providers of the service and we really need to see a priority put on this legislation well, We now. really do if it's uh, to become a, a reality because it would appear from what the Garda Commissioner uh, said about existing laws uh, a lot needs to be done to make it happen we have to leave it there for the moment though and thank you indeed for joining us and uh, apologies to you and our listeners once again for the problems with the telephone line that we experienced a little bit earlier on that's Dr Cleena Lochnan Women's Health Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, the turn-off, uh, the red light uh, campaign uh, ran for many years and uh, was successful in legislation which was introduced two years ago which made it illegal to buy sex in this country whilst uh, the selling uh, of sex is no longer illegal. Uh, but there's been little in the way of enforcing that law since its introduction nearly two years ago. That is up until last week when 38 people were stopped and questioned uh, across various counties in uh, the country uh, about uh, what they were doing. Uh, Amanda Keane, Policy and Communications Manager at Ruama, is with us now. And a very good morning to Amanda. Ruama is a group that works with women affected by prostitution and commercial sexual exploitation. Uh, And I suppose there's been questions about uh, whether this legislation uh, that made it illegal to buy sex was worth the paper it was written on if it wasn't being enforced. Do you think that somehow there's been a a change in the approach taken to men buying sex by Ungarda Siakana? Good morning, Michael, and thank you very much for having us on. Um, Yeah, so like you said, in the past couple of weeks, the Gardaí really stepped up their actions in terms of um, 
the purchase of sex. So 38 men were questioned in a number of counties um, around their activity. So this comes in the back of um, another uh, round of activities back in April where the Gardaí also questioned 36 suspected sex buyers. Um, Also, we've seen that this year that the amount of cases that are being reviewed by the DPP under this legislation has doubled since last year. So there's 14 being reviewed this year and there were seven, just seven last year. Um, This year so far, there's been three convictions under the law. So, um, you know, I think it's taken time for the Gardaí to really commit to enforcing this legislation. But uh, so far in 2019, we're seeing really, really good actions around this. Mm. I mean, the the Gardaí that are responsible for this, this is Operation Quest, and they're under the Garda National Protective Services Bureau. And these are the Gardaí that are, um, they're the ones that have the remit for organised prostitution and human trafficking. So really, they see firsthand the effects that sex buyers have on the women that they're exploiting. So, um, you know, they really are committed to the law. So, you know, ultimately, we're really glad to see that this year that the the actions have been upped and we hope to see that continue into the future. But at the same time, three convictions really is a small fry, isn't it? A a drop in the ocean, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, we think that about 8% of Irish men paid for sex. So three convictions, um, that's, you know, that's small in terms of the amount of men that are paying for sex. But it's not just about the legislation either. So the whole idea is, is not to to go around and Mm. round up sex buyers and throw them all in jail. It's really also to have this societal shift in attitudes. So um, it's reflected in the legislation of the country that it's not okay to pay for sex, that that sex buyers are, you know, fueling organised crime. They're causing real serious harm and long-term trauma to the women, like we see it every Mm. single day. So, you know, when... Funding enslavement in many respects. What's that? I say funding enslavement in many respects. Yes, exactly, mm. absolutely. Mm. Um, so if there wasn't a demand for, for sex from men across the country, I mean, it's happening in every single town and village across Ireland. So if there wasn't a demand there, then the women wouldn't be um, basically trapped in brothels, you know, and exploited mm. this way. So um, so it's also sending a message, a very clear message that uh, uh, supports the most vulnerable in the country. Uh, how is it possible to quantify uh, how many men uh, buy sex? You said 8% of Irish men. Uh, where does that figure come from? So that came from research that was carried out in 2015. So Rahama, um, we had a campaign called We Don't Buy It. And in order to, before the campaign went out, there was um, research done with Red Sea as to how many people paid for sex. So it came back at 8%. And that number, it's, it encompasses mm. mostly middle-aged, um, 25 upwards men who have disposable income, who are generally from middle-class backgrounds who have education um, and that's compared to the women who they're exploiting who don't have that disposable income who generally you know would have lower levels of education so it's a real clear um, you know contrast in terms of the the, the power um, between the two. Uh, and men in relationships? Yes it tends to be men who are in relationships I think people are surprised at that one in particular because um, there's a there's a, an idea that it's you know lonely older men who are looking for some company when it's actually men who are in relationships, what they'll do, and, and you know, the Gardaí know this as well, is that a lot of the time they'll pay for sex on their lunch so that they're not arousing suspicion at home or else, you know, in that, that couple of hours in the evening time where they could be commuting, say, between five and seven, um, they'll pay for sex around that time as well mm-hmm. so that they're, they're not arousing suspicion from their significant other. So we know that the, the biggest way 
to deter sex buyers is this risk of arrest, this risk of public exposure where their families are going to find out, their employers are going to find out. Um, so, so that's really the idea behind the law. Uh, and is it difficult to secure a, a prosecution? I think the the county would speak more to that one, but I think mm. that the, it can be um, the evidence you know, required can be maybe burdensome, but the law is going to be reviewed next year, so that is something to look at um, in the legislation in terms of can that be tweaked, that the Gardaí have, um, you know, more power to to implement the legislation without needing quite so much evidence. Okay, well, if uh, somebody is uh, planning on behaving that way uh, over the lunchtime today, uh, they can keep in mind uh, that 38 men were stopped uh, over the course of uh, recent weeks uh, and asked uh, about what they were up to. But we leave it there for the moment, Amanda, and thank you indeed for joining us. Amanda Keane, Policy and Communications Manager at Ruama, brings our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out on us once again. Before we go, remind let me remind you that there'll be a podcast available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.